Good morning. My name is Yolanda Cruz of the Santa Fe Community Foundation. Welcome to Community Matters on KSFR's Wake Up Call. Community Matters is a radio program where subject experts and community leaders talk about the challenges and inequities our communities face and possible solutions that could contribute to its growth. Today I'm joined by Sunshine News of Black Health New Mexico. With over 20 years of academic and professional training and a lifelong commitment and passion for social justice and equity, Sunshine News brings a unique perspective and expertise to facilitation and program design for community, higher education, health systems, and social services. Sunshine grew up widely exposed to the American cultural melting pot and the complex gender, cultural, language, economic, and ethnic inequities within it. Today, Muse's work focuses on understanding and navigating the raw dynamics of health inequity and identifying and creating community-centered solutions to addressing them. Well, welcome, Sunshine. I have to say what a privilege it is to have you as a guest today. Yolanda, I want to thank you as well, and it's my equal privilege to have this conversation with someone as special as you, so thank you. As I read your bio, it really drew this visual trail for me, naming various inequities within the American culture of a melting pot and landing in a very powerful place of community-centered solutions. Tell me more about the story behind those words. Well, Yolanda, um, (laughs) I think that um, I was very fortunate to grow up in a place like New York City. Uh, I I grew up in the 70s there at a time when um, there were people coming in from all parts of the world. And um, I grew up in a, I'm African-American as far as I know back. And I grew up in a building that was predominantly Latinx. And it had Latinx folks from all different parts of the globe. So from uh, the, a lot of folks from the Afro-Caribbean Um, including the Dominican Republic and Puerto Rico, less from Central America and Mexico or South America at that time. But I grew up hearing um, different languages. I went to school with people who were of Jewish heritage from all different backgrounds. Um, The the Haitian population was growing in the city when I was there. And then, of course, we had sort of the more standard, if you will, for lack of a more generous word, um, Black Americans from all different parts of this country And we had white Americans from all different parts of this country. And so together we were growing, eating each other's food, hearing each other's languages, um, being seen and seeing each other's grandmas and grandparents. And it was just a really powerful experience to realize that there is no monolith when it comes to community or identity and um, seeing us all sort of thrive together. So that was a benefit in terms of the cultural melting pot. Um, and, And that's, that's the way I was, was raised, to see people that we exist on a spectrum of continuity, and that continuity has some different cultural aspects, but also similarities, and that language nor pigment um, can really define us completely. I hope that is the beginning of an answer to your question. It is. And so how did your, that experience shape your understanding of the world you were in and the inequities that existed around that? My mom was a single mom. We were blessed that my grandparents had resources. Both of them had worked their way to that level of privilege. But my mom herself was a single mom and became successful in her career. She was a young mom. She had me at age 20. And so she wasn't highly resourced and didn't have a partner in the home. 
And so we grew up in a very working class community with a lot of immigrant families in the building that I described. And going sort of between where my grandparents lived, which was a, a more middle class environment, to where I grew up with my mother and seeing the, the sort of differences in access to services, in just sort of like diversity of, of folks on the street, wow, the type of stores that were in the differing communities and, and the type of food and access that was, sold, that was available in those stores, those were some of the things that shaped me early on. I also went to public school for a while as I was growing up, and when my mom could afford it, went to private school as well. So I was sort of dodging always in between these varying environments of sort of economic and social privilege or lack thereof, and, and noticed that in the less sort of access areas or privileged areas were more black and brown people and more people whose language was not English as the first language. But the community that we were able to build together and the ways that um, we were able to create family across cultural differences and um, country of origin differences was powerful. And so um, I think the way that it shaped my worldview is that I was clear that there were inequities. My mom was an activist, a feminist. She made me well aware of the issue of police brutality. Remember now it's 2021, and I'm talking about the 1970s. Um, My mom was outspoken, and so I knew that there were issues. I very well remember growing up and my mom hanging off our fire escape or terrace. Those are the kind of things that we have in apartment buildings in big cities. Um, she would she hung up she would hang up a banner um, every time someone was murdered by the police. So this is more than gosh is is that forty years ago? It's hard to say that without feeling emotional. But it was more than forty years ago that that my mom was reacting and responding and resisting police violence towards community. Um, and again, she was a feminist, so I grew up with that framework as well. So I had the culture, I had the gender, um, I had the language, and I had the activism all in, in the backdrop of my upbringing. You know, I know you're talking about the 70s in New York City, and I can hear what you're saying mirrored a lot of times in some of the experiences on what's going on in our world today. How do you draw that thread from the 70s New York City to today in New Mexico? I'm really grateful to live in New Mexico. I'm grateful for the spaciousness, like the literal spaciousness of the land that by the grace of God and the strength of people has not been overdeveloped for capital gains. Um, So there's a huge difference in that, right? Just like having space. I'm grateful to live in a place, like I grew up in a building where Spanish was the dominant language, right? Where we are a majority minority state. I think we're at at least 47%, if not a bit more Latinx. That's a gift for me. It has a lot to do with how I, how I grew up, what surrounded me. And that way there's um, similarity as opposed to difference. I think as a country, including in Santa Fe and New Mexico, we know that we're still dealing with these issues of inequity in police force, inequity in health outcomes, inequity in housing access, right? Um, all of the things. And so in that way, it saddens me, like I was saying, as I, re- you know, speak about and remember, oh my gosh, it was over 40 years ago that I watched my mom hang those banners off our fire escape window speaking out of police violence, that any of these inequities are still issues. 
Martin Luther King has some fabulous quotes about healthcare and, and the importance of healthcare access for all people. And the fact that he actually spent his life's work to address these issues and died on the altar of them, and these are still things that we have not fixed in our society, is sad. And sad is, is the gentlest word that I can use to, to describe what it feels like to be talking about growing up in the 70s with these awarenesses and in a family that was trying to address these wrongs alongside whole movements of people, right, nationally and internationally, and that um, still we're fighting a very similar fight today. Though I have ideas about where we're going next. Talk a little bit about those ideas. Where are we going next? And what is your role in that and the role of Black Health Mexico and our role as community members? Let me start where, with where I think, where I know we're going next. Here at Black Health New Mexico, one of the things that we have done recently as we've crossed from 2020 into 2021 is uh, worked really hard to create as a team what our vision is for what we're calling the new world. And when we say new world, we really mean a world that um, exists outside of and beyond uh, colonialism, white supremacy, patriarchy, um, ableism, transphobia, and a resistance to non-binary identities, right? And so we are clear as an organization that, that that's really what we have to focus on. I mentioned Martin Luther King, and, you know, he's someone that most Americans have grown up um, being taught to respect. Although I must say that the truth is, is that during the time that he was alive and the time that he was murdered, he was not respected by the majority of American people, regardless of their ethnic or cultural background. Um, he was considered an agitator. Um, he was considered a threat to the United States government. So the way that we see him now as, as sort of an iconic uh, movement leader, that wasn't how he was treated when he was alive. Nonetheless, <clears throat> he spent his, again, life and career trying to address inequity in our culture, and he died to see things change. And um, I don't think we're at that place anymore where folks need nor should be willing to do that. Um, I think we're at a place where people of color have a right and an opportunity to practice self-care and self-love and joy and cultural rootedness that allows us to step back from being the leaders of sort of saving America's soul or pointing out the ills of racism and the other isms that I mentioned. And I think it's time for our white allies and accomplices to then step forward and do some heavy lifting. So in our new world, uh, that's a big part of it. I think the new world also involves an end to borders as they've been drawn as part of sort of the colonial map of the country and the, and, and the countries that we border. People have a right to move freely um, if we are truly operating under a free market, then we would understand that that right to move freely would actually support our market, our free market. Um, we're moving towards universal health care, right? We see this in different countries. It, there's a lot of information and propaganda that says it would never work for us, that we wouldn't be able to get doctor's appointments quickly, that the lines would be so awful. But in fact, if you look underneath the rhetoric at the data, Folks are getting incredible health care in countries where there's universal health care. People aren't waiting in long lines. I spoke with someone yesterday who's an expat 
a black American expat from the U.S. who's moved to Canada and has been there, I believe, three years. Um, and it took her three days to get a to get a doctor's appointment, which is shorter than it takes me now, right? Um, and if I told you what I pay for my health care premium, I think you might fall out of your seat. So we're moving to a place where force, in terms of uh, justice and public service, is no longer going to be tolerated. We see that it doesn't work. We see that it's racialized. We see that it's uh, a demeaning and that it's traumatic to all people involved. We should not be watching murders occur um, from people's camera phones, then repeatedly shown on uh, our social media or our news media. That's not good for our children. That's not good for our elders. And that's not good for anyone in between. So um, there's so many things that are going to happen. The woman that I talked to yesterday, the expat who's now living in Canada, she talked about free midwifery service being part of the universal health care there. Um, one of our interest areas and advocacy areas is black maternal health because black women in the United States have, I believe, it's a 200, about 40, about 240% of um, dying in a childbirth or maternal related death than any other culture that lives in this country. When you have midwifery care accessible, including home visits with exceptional postpartum follow up, that type of stuff doesn't happen. So just so much. I feel like I'm rambling on, but my ramble is about excitement. And I hope that you can hear that in my voice. I think we're done with the way things have been. And I think that we're done heavy lifting and martyring ourselves and our bodies to change a culture. That it's really not our sole responsibility to change. I I do hear that excitement. And um, that's why I didn't it didn't sound like rambling to me because I'm just really excited to hear of, you know, the views of where you think that we are going as a city, as a state, as a country. And a lot of times, um, because inequities are disproportionately placed on marginalized communities, we blame those communities and the people in those communities for those disparities and inequities. But it really is obvious that the community has strengths and focusing on those strengths and um, making space for community members to be the leaders in creating the solutions is really the way to move past inequities. And that's kind of what I'm getting from your conversation. Absolutely. I mean, unfortunately, part of colonialism and also the system of slavery in the United States of America was to displace uh, community members from, from being leaders in their own Spaces and arenas. And so um, elders were displaced, um, spiritual teachers and healers were displaced, and some of it was done with pure violence. Uh, all of it was done systematically over years, and not just one or two years, but quite frankly, relentlessly over centuries. Um, women were displaced, and, and patriarchy became the norm, and so women couldn't leave. They had to marry to have values. Not that marriage isn't a wonderful thing, but how and why we do it does matter. Um, you know, healers had to go through westernized systems to be credentialed and, and legally allowed to practice. Our religion was replaced, right, by, by the religion that came with the colonial leadership, so many things happen, folks being displaced from their land, um, traditional foods being replaced with, with uh, canned and uh, preserved foods. 
all of these things matter for, for our safety and for community leadership. Um, and so when we talk about uh, problems in community, what we know is that outside of a system of white supremacy, communities have the solutions to the problems that we face. I think the biggest, the biggest barrier to having those uh, solutions utilized and uh, becoming successful is the presence of, of, of racism and, and white supremacy. And so in the absence of that, we get to reclaim our, our culture, our, our knowledge, our leadership styles, our community caretaking styles, right, and, and really see ourselves flourish. And that doesn't mean that it will be a utopia, but I can promise you that it won't be what it is today um, because it wasn't what it was, it wasn't what it is today prior to colonialism. So, yeah. Communities get to lead. Communities have their own solutions. We're, it's not that we don't know what to do. It's that the barriers of the social determinants of health and, and racism and the systems that, that brutalize us and move each other from one another's lives, right, that, that, that take parents and, and have them die within medical systems where they should be able to thrive and live, that uh, criminal justice systems that remove aunts and uncles and fathers and mothers from households that immigration policies that separate parents from their children and grandparents from uh, their grandchildren, all of these things have to cease and stop before we could ever have an honest evaluation of how able black and brown people are to solve our own problems because we're living in a toxic environment. And you can't know how well a fish can swim until you remove the toxicity from the water that it's existing in. Wow, that's really amazing to just to hear you bring all of that together in just a few minutes. And what I hear you saying is the necessity to lead with our values. And I hear um, some of the policies that need to be changed. What are some of the concrete steps that I can take that my family members, my neighbors, um, how do we step into this future together? I love that question. You know, this the cross-cultural dialogue is really important. Not relying on mainstream media or even the mainstream education system, be it K through 12 or university, to be the sole source of information about people and possibilities, because those systems are also um, existing in a white supremacist framework. So if we rely on those solely, we're not going to get all of the information that we need to think in a way that will feed our liberation. I think really, again, calling on our white allies and accomplices, whether it's, you know, whatever whiteness means, sometimes it's presentation in terms of pigment, um, sometimes it's generations of uh, privilege and wealth based on that pigment and actual financial um, capital. But however we're defining whiteness, I think we need to call on our white allies and accomplices again to step forward and start heavy lifting. Um, I think it's, we have, again, self-sacrificed for centuries, literally, to try to create equity and freedom in American spaces for all people. And uh, we can't afford to do that anymore. Um, so we get to hold each other accountable to a new way of undoing these systems that are harming us. Um, I think that Donations help, right? If you don't know what to do or you don't have time to do it, uh, you can donate uh, financially to organizations that are prepared to lead the way. Um, I think that folks 
who have traditionally held power and been unwilling to share it with people with either lesser sort of academic training or lesser professional titles or um, perhaps they're not legacy in terms of uh, academia need to step aside, right? It's time to give up seats. I'm really extremely passionate about this idea of proportional representation. And proportional representation really means that um, it's not okay to have um, spaces and decision-making tables be homogenous, be all white, in particular, um, or be predominantly white when those tables are seeking to implement decisions, policies, and practices uh, for black and brown people. So we need proportional representation at all decision-making tables. And again, in honor of Dr. Martin Luther King, um, my gosh, he was killed in the late 60s. So this is another heartbreaking thing when we do the math. So more than 50 years later, we need to stop talking about integration. None of our policies and practices should be about integrating decision-making tables um, or organizations or leadership opportunities. All of our conversations need to shift in 2021 to proportional representation. Um, You know, my mind is thinking about all of the possibilities and the things where those shifts are happening, the places where those shifts are not happening and the work that we need to do. And it's overwhelming, but it's also exciting. Um, Sunshine, can you tell me a little bit? um, I want to shift just, just a little bit and go into, you know, when we can communicate by email. There's something at the bottom of some of your emails that says progress is perfection. Can you tell me a little bit about that? Sure. I embraced that phrase in 2018. I thought, wow, this is it. I I love it. You know, it's that we're all a work in progress, that um, we don't have to seek perfection as a a fixed or static end. Um, It gives space for us as a a people as well as as individuals and systems at that time, 2018, to be um, evolving. And so I thought, this is it. I, I put it in my email signature. I have to be honest with you and tell you that I am no longer going to be utilizing that in 2021. And thank goodness it's only January, right? So I have time to change it. <laughs> um, I'm quite clear that I, I no longer believe that progress is perfection. Um, I, I don't know what the new slogan will be, but to everything that I've said and shared today, it's time for us to rapidly step into a new world. I have to tell you that um, I heard a quote recently, and I'm going to pull it up while we're on the phone talking about this. Um, it was really, really interesting. It was about, let me see if I can pull it up. Here's a quote. We're already in the new system. It's just that the hypnosis is in overdrive. So I'll repeat that. We're already in the new system. It's just that the hypnosis is in overdrive. And what that means to me is that we don't have to wait. We don't have to keep doing the same thing, banging our heads against the same walls that our elders and ancestors have banged against for so long. Um, We can step in right now into a new system of, of living that includes of criminal justice, of healthcare, of education, of how we do community, of legislation, of how we do policy, of electoral processes and politics, of gender relations, 
today. And by stepping in, we make a way. But by always being on the outside, sort of waiting for permission to enter or always being on the outside, um, protesting the system that currently exists, by always being on the outside, feeling afraid or critical what already exists, I think we're slowing our own progress. And in 2021, my commitment and my invitation to anyone listening, regardless of your cultural or ethnic background, regardless of your past, your history, um, your historical political views, is to wake up and step forward with us into this new system where none of the old ways, meaning the patriarchal and colonial and white supremacist ways, supremacist ways dictate what's possible. I hope that makes sense. It does. And I hope that everyone listening today thinks about how they can take those steps together. Thank you so much, Sunshine. Again, this is Yolanda Cruz of the Santa Fe Community Foundation, and we've been talking today with Sunshine News of Black Health, New Mexico. Thank you so much.